the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 3, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Hoyblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Eric Kruzhnevskaya, and our returning guest host, Andrew Gillat. On today's episode, we discuss the science of learning with Dr. Cindy Neville. Before we get started with that, Eric, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? You got it, Molly. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And we have a awesome conversation with our guest, Dr. Cindy Niebel, tonight. We cover the science of learning, the six techniques as part of that, and so many applications of these techniques to kind of make it as cool as possible. And Andrew, welcome back to the show. You've been helping us so much behind the scenes, and we're really happy to have you on air. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's uh, great to be back here uh, and recording with y'all, and I'm uh, really happy to introduce our guest today, uh, Dr. Cynthia uh, Niebel. Uh, who is a PhD uh, and a senior lecturer at the Leadership and Learning in Organizations doctoral program at Vanderbilt University. She has broad interest in applying the science of learning to educational co- context, and she has presented the science of learning to students and educators from K-12 to medical schools in the U.S. and abroad as well, um, along with corporate and government organizations. Uh, Dr. Niebel is passionate about promoting dialogue between researchers and practitioners as an active collaborator of the, of the learning scientist. And if you love the content the Curbsiders family produces, we want to encourage you to think about supporting our Patreon. Your support helps pay for our audio editing, transcripts, and lets us create the accessible, high-quality content you're used to. The link and so many of our resources, like our show notes, infographics, transcripts, and more, are available on our website. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So, so without, so without further ado, let's, let's, get, let's to get, to get to it. Dr. Nebel, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Are you okay if we call you Cindy for this recording? Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, we'd like to start with some rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Could you give us a one liner to describe yourself? Yeah, um, I'm a cognitive psychologist. I've been teaching in higher ed for a little over a decade. I'm a wife and a mother of three who basically take up all the rest of my time. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Is there anything um, that you like to kind of or recently have liked to consume, Cindy? I'm thinking like book, movie, show, album, something that really brought you joy. Yeah, um, most recently, and this is completely random, but most recently I was listening to audiobooks because that's all I have time for. And um, I listened to the entire series of books about the tattooist of Auschwitz. I don't know if you guys are familiar. It's so good. And it was at the very end of it that I was like, oh, this is a true story. Oh, my gosh. So anyway, Mm. it's good if you have it. (laughs) <laughs> I haven't heard of that. I'll have to check it out. Is I haven't it, either. It, it sounds like it would probably be pretty heavy, pretty emotionally intense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, right, it's it's about the Holocaust, but um, it's, it's like a love story that took place in one of the concentration camps, and I thought it was historical fiction, and it wasn't, so mm. anyway, it's good. Well, well. Uh, well, we love being meta here on the show. Um, can you think <laughs> of anything that you're 
kind of um, that has progressed in your research and expertise around the science of learning, like a specific example of a technique that you used to use in teaching that you changed or something new that you're trying to incorporate? Yeah, so I teach in a professional program at Vanderbilt. So I'm teaching all doctoral students who have like full-time jobs. Um, and so when I started, I was really kind of trying to cater to that crowd. And um, one of the things we'll talk about later, I'm sure, is retrieval practice, um, that the idea of bringing stuff to mind is really useful for learning. Um, but the way to do that in a classroom setting is often something that looks a little like quizzes. And so I started incorporating quizzes in all of my classes, much to the chagrin mm -hmm. of adult professionals who don't like taking quizzes. Um, <laughs> but most of them uh, come around eventually by the end of the semester, they're like, huh, this actually is kind of helpful. But um, it's something I had kind of axed when I was talking to that crowd. And then I was like, no, this is good. We're going to do it. It's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great shout out to our listeners to fill out the CME quiz and uh, you will get to practice <laughs> retrieval and get CME credit. Yeah. Oh, yeah look go. at that application, Molly. I love it. <laughs> Um, well, maybe let's jump into a case from Cashlock Memorial about the science of learning. Ira, do you want to kick us off? This is Sophia. Um, she is an early career attending who's excited to take on the role of coordinating third-year medical students, their longitudinal clerkship in outpatient primary care. And this includes clinic sessions and classroom or uh, recently, more recently Zoom-based ideas. Sophia's goals are to integrate evidence-based practices to help her students not only learn and retain the evidence-based kind of clinical information that they need, but also transfer the classroom learning directly to patient care when they're in. So Cindy, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, the majority of our listeners are clinicians in the health professions education space as well, and not necessarily formally trained educators. And for those of us who may be less integrated in this space, can you kind of Give us a little bit of background around the history of the study of learning and the science, the history of the science behind learning, kind of maybe a little timeline uh, throwback for us. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I come from the world of cognitive psychology. And so there are things that we know about learning that come from other disciplines as well. But I'm going to stick with what I know here. Um, and so out of cognitive psychology, really a lot of um, kind of the science of learning stuff started uh, maybe a little over 100 years ago with um, folks doing primarily really lab-based studies, right, um, of how we learn and remember. Um, and then from there, it's really only probably been maybe the last 20 years ago that we took all of this really rich information that we have about memory and attention and perception, we understand those basic processes pretty well, but it's only been really like the last 20 years that folks have started taking that and doing more applied research of really looking in medical education classrooms, in K through 12 classrooms, at how those things that we know so much about really translate into strategies that folks can use. And we like to keep things kind of basic here. Um, practically speaking, how do we actually learn? What are, how does that process actually happen? It sounds like a basic question, <laughs> but it's pretty complicated. Um, so I, I teach an entire course on how we learn. So I will try to boil it down into the like one minute version of how do we learn. Please um, do. So as information comes in, we kind of have 
well, we have a couple, but two processing centers that I'll talk about. The first is working memory. So information comes into the system and we have this workspace where we do all of our connecting information with prior knowledge. We do all of our decision making, our room and like when we're thinking about things, it's all in this kind of working memory space. So that's what I think of as like the place where we do learning, if you will, right? Where that like verb of learning takes place. Um, And then that information, when it gets connected to prior knowledge, then gets stored in long-term memory, which is really what we think about when we think of whether or not something has been learned is whether or not it's been stored for later use. So the how do we learn, there's a lot more to it of like, what can make learning better or worse, like what enhances that process. But the basic process is we have to attend to something first and then do something with it in this workspace to get it to move into long-term memory. Can I just say that for some of us that are more concrete, um, I appreciate Molly taking that part of the question out, but uh, like me, um, that was super helpful, Cindy, to just break it down from like the, where's the do of learning and then where's the like, I guess the storage yeah, or the exactly. has been learned space. Yeah. Um, I wonder uh, if there's more to kind of touch on there, please, you know, expound on that. But are there um, techniques that we want to talk about that are like most backed by the literature in terms of how we actually do that first step, that do of learning? Yeah. So there have been a few literature reviews that have come out in the last 10 years or so that have really tried to review all of the different strategies that cognitive psychologists talk about and which of these have the most research to support their use. So I should note, I work with a group of other cognitive psychologists and all of us are sort of these science translators and I can talk more about that at the end maybe, but um, it's the group of us kind of decided on these six specific strategies that are most useful um, and have the most research to support their use. So those strategies are um, spaced learning, elaboration, concrete examples, dual coding, interleaving, and retrieval practice. I'm like, can I remember all six off the top of my head? (laughs) Yeah, we're good. We're good. All right. Wow. Cindy, you mentioned those techniques so fluidly. I just want to recap. So I heard space learning. I heard interleaving, elaboration, concrete examples, dual coding, and retrieval practice. And maybe we could dive even like a little bit more deeply into each of these. And obviously we can start with, you know, how the um, research applies them to kind of the formal uh, learning environment or teaching environment, but definitely want to hear your take on each of the techniques individually as well. You want me to go through all six right now? (laughs) Well, maybe, you know, uh, is there one that you feel like um, is uh, especially pertinent as we make that transition in Sophia's case between like, taking kind of things that we learn in a classroom-based setting to the clinical um, environment, maybe that uh, application piece? Yeah, no, that's great. So um, what we call that in cognitive psychology world is transfer. It's the transfer of knowledge. And so some of these, I mean, all of these are kind of helpful for that, but um, concrete examples is one that very specifically is for that. Um But concrete examples kind of sounds like this really simple thing. Obviously, you use examples of everything in your teaching. Who doesn't? Um, But what a lot of research has found is that most folks tend to use one example of something. 
And then the learners, the students, tend to think that that example is the thing instead of realizing that, oh, there are lots of different ways that this applies. And so the, um, the advice is to use multiple varied examples. So you want things that really look different but are both examples of whatever it is you're talking about because then folks are more likely to notice those things but also other instances. And I can give you examples of concrete examples if you want, but. <laughs> um, yes, please. You know how we feel about that type of example giving and meta myth. Yeah. Um, so this isn't this isn't medical education, but this is the the concrete example that I usually use. Um, so we can talk about the idea of scarcity, um, which is this abstract concept of as the as something becomes more scarce, then the value of it increases. Um, but that's pretty abstract. So usually you would use an example here, and maybe the example is airline tickets. So as there are fewer tickets, you get closer and closer to the flight, the price of the tickets goes up. The problem is if I stopped there, folks might think that scarcity is about tickets. And it's not. Um, because another example of scarcity could be water during a drought, where the relative value of water is going up, right? So we have less water. And so now you're not going to spend your water on watering your grass. You're going to reserve it for bathing and cooking, maybe. So those two very different examples then would help somebody to recognize that concept in other places as well. I love that. Um, Andrew, do you want to take us away on our next question? Yeah, I would love to. For a medical ed educator, space practice seems to almost be part of the natural approach to teaching clinical learners as we never quite know which patients with different conditions will be present and so will frequently come after or plan didactic. Could you explain more about how space practice helps improve learning and retention? It's almost easier to talk about why not space practice is bad than to talk about why space practice is good. Um, so if, if you think about like the first time that you read something or hear about something, or maybe you're even studying something. And so maybe it's like prepping for boards and you're studying different things and you're like, oh, okay, what does the thalamus do? And I'm studying that and I'm remembering that. And then if I come across that again right away, I just read it and say the answer, right? I don't have to think about it. I don't have to process it. I don't have to do much with it in order to remember that again. It turns out that learning takes place when we do that effortful processing, when we're thinking about it and trying to remember like, okay, what exactly was that? Um, that's when learning is taking place. So if things are too close together, there's no processing really happening the second time, and it's kind of a waste of time. But if you do some spacing in between, then you have to like bring it back to mind again and be like, wait, what was that? Um, and thinking about it, thinking is learning, as it turns out. <laughs> Fantastic. I love and that. How do you define interleaving, and can you describe a best practice for using that? Yeah, so interleaving is um, this idea of jumbling things up. So um, you take material that is often confused. That's the best time to use interleaving is when you have things that are typically confused. And then you try to practice those jumbled together. So I was trying to think of a good example for this for medical education as, as I was kind of prepping for this. And I'm going to give – this might be a terrible example, but – 
it mattered to me at one point Mm -hmm. in my life. So we're going to roll with it. Um, So when um, my son was little, he had roseola and we thought maybe it was measles. So I'm going to use that as like Mm -hmm. things that could be confused. So if, if you were trying to learn the difference between those rashes, a lot of times what many education organizations do is you would present multiple examples of roseola. Like we're going to present this like five of them in a row. These are all roseola. And then later we'll talk about measles and we'll present all of those right in a row. Well, it turns out that learning happens better if instead of doing that, you mix them together. And this way you learn to differentiate between those things that are next to each other. If you have to like first think of, wait, what is this? And then try to analyze it in some way. um, Then you, that extra processing leads to better learning and better differentiation. So in, in medical education, I think it would be key to try to think about those times where sometimes things get confused and to try to apply it there. I love that because I feel like interleaving was the one word where I was like, tell me more like the other words of the technique I you know could understand like concrete bowls you know um spaced practice I can get some of that but the interleaving is the most kind of at least most exciting so I appreciate you breaking that down yeah I don't know who decided to call it interleaving but and not interweaving um, like I know yeah people (laughs) usually say that I don't know um but I'm like at some point in time we should have put a stake in the sand and said we're not calling it that because it doesn't make any sense but well I love that we've almost covered like half of the techniques for the next one, um, kind of in terms of elaboration, I wonder if you might be able to give us a kind of a setting where that would be the best choice for an educator to use and kind of how we integrate that um, for optimal learning. Yeah. So this is an interesting one. I actually gave a talk during... I don't know, a medical education day or grand rounds or something. And while we were prepping for the talk, they gave me the example. So I feel, I feel confident about this one. So elaboration is this idea of going deeper with something, of asking how and why questions in order to get a better understanding and really kind of like broaden your understanding of something instead of just kind of individual facts. And so, um, The example that I was given was in um, reading charts, that instead of just taking charts at face value, if you ask lots of how and why questions about the things that you're seeing in that chart, it's going to give you a much more elaborate understanding of what's going on with that patient. And this can be applied to lots of different places too. I mean, it doesn't have to just be about like understanding our patients. It can be about understanding knowledge too. Um... But the key here is that you have to be able to answer the questions. And so elaboration is one of these that you don't want to use with novices who are just learning facts for the first time. This is something that you're going to take knowledge further. So you want to make sure people have some knowledge so that they can try to answer those questions. Well, I... I'm glad that we are, you know, we have scientific backup for some of the things that we're doing, because that is a classically taught way of kind of precepting with learners, you know, if they're coming and telling you about a clinical case, and you want to try to encourage them to dig deeper. So now we have a word to describe it. Hey, I, hey. <laughs> I think it's hard too, because, you know, a lot of times in medical education, from my experience, sometimes you can get almost too much in the weeds. And you can really dive in and you don't want to kind of like you're saying, take away from some of those um, those facts and some of those um, points that you need to just get across without kind of adding in too much for a learner in a specific 
point in their like either education career or wherever they're at um, with a specific issue. So um, I think definitely what you're talking about. Yeah, that's interesting, Andrew. It's kind of like the the danger of elaboration mm-hmm. is that, you know, you could go too far with it. You have to keep track of all the stuff you need to learn. Certainly, you'll learn those couple of things really, really well, but um, maybe that's not all you need to know. <laughs> and do you often see like elaboration and interleaving kind of going hand in hand a little bit, like where you interleave and, and figure out the things that are different between two topics, and then that's when you bring in that elaboration right after that? Yeah, so that's that's one way to sort of naturally introduce elaboration to say, how are these things similar? Why are these things different? Um, that those same how and why questions are really elaborating on what it is that you're looking at. So yeah, they do kind of naturally go together. <laughs> We've had some prior episodes on teaching techniques, specifically our recent uh, whiteboard mini lecture episode comes to mind where we talk about using visual and auditory clues to synergistically improve retention, um, while also being mindful of reducing extraneous load. Could you share some of your favorite tips on how to incorporate dual coding? Yeah, so that sounds like dual coding to me. So awesome. Great. Um, We should relabel that episode. (laughs) Yeah, right. You just relabel it. Yeah. Uh, A lot of times um, dual coding uh, in the research is really combining visual information with verbal information, which could be auditory, but it doesn't have to be. And medical education uses dual coding pretty darn well already because it's really difficult to learn anatomy without having both a picture and words, uh, right? You need both. Um, But one of the the things that I often tell people about dual coding because it often gets screwed up is in creating any kind of presentation. So this is, I mean, PowerPoint, but now people hate PowerPoint, but they do the same thing in Canva or whatever. So true. yeah, so the 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 issue that often comes up is that if you have words on a screen, um, reading is a pretty automatic process. We see words and we start reading. And so if you have those words on the screen and you're talking, people aren't listening anymore. They're reading the screen. And so one of the the biggest things with dual coding is it's not just about kind of adding pictures, but also kind of reducing the words when you do so that these things are complementary. The other sort of danger with dual coding is that um, it's not just about throwing pictures up there. Pictures can also be distracting. That if you have a picture and it has nothing to do with what you're talking about, people are looking at that picture going, what is that? Right? And they're no longer listening to you. Um, and so really making sure that the whatever the picture is that you're using is demonstrating what it is that you're saying or what it is that that is in the verbal information as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. 100%. I'm okay, just yeah. thinking about, I'm reflecting on how many of the recent PowerPoint lectures that I've either given or given feedback, uh, kind of had a feedback conversation with the person giving it, where I was like, this neat, there's too much happening. Or I was like, ooh, Ira, the picture you chose unclear how it was related to the slide or like just you know have those moments when you realize like this was dual coding gone well or done right and this is dual coding maybe not so hotly done so yeah there's nothing that makes me cringe more than like a paragraph on a slide oh my gosh death by powerpoint (laughs) yeah that's right and it's hard from like a learning perspective too because you want to be engaged and you want to stay active and try and understand those points but when you're faced with all that information um, you you try to digest it really really fast and it can be a little frustrating 
Totally. Yeah, that's exactly right. That you're just trying to process everything because everything feels important. So yeah, they have to be complimentary for it to work. The other thing I wonder, Cindy, is before we apply this to Sophia's case, because we definitely want to hear kind of your um, expert advice on, you know, practically applying these six techniques. Um, maybe could you review with us uh, retrieval practice as well and how kind of learners, you know, how we can uh, use that technique for learners? Yeah, so of, of all the techniques that we've talked about, spaced practice probably has the most research to support its use in like every situation you can imagine. Um, but the next one is retrieval practice. So this is really, really good for learning. And if, if there was one thing I could get people to do, it would be spaced retrieval practice. Um, but retrieval practice really um, is, is a cool one because it has multiple reasons why it works. So retrieval practice is simply bringing something to mind. And that can be done in so many different ways. I mentioned quizzes, but it doesn't have to be quizzes. It could be drawing a picture. It could be having a conversation, right? As we're talking right now, I have to bring this stuff to mind. So this is retrieval practice for me. Um, but what's cool about retrieval practice is it has, has multiple reasons why it works. So one thing that happens is as individuals try to bring something to mind, sometimes they find out that they can't. And so it can become a nice metacognitive tool that tells you what you do and don't know and where you might need to review information later on. But the really cool thing about retrieval practice is that the very act of bringing information to mind strengthens that information. So just the very act of doing it helps you to learn it better later on, even if you never get to go back and restudy it. Um, so that's kind of how retrieval practice works. I don't know if I answered your whole question, though. You very much did. Is this um, similar or the same as active learning? And, you know, I know that's something that we talk about in medical education a lot is this passive versus active. And, you know, passive is always kind of talked down to as not being the most efficient way of learning, not to say that there's not a place for it or it's, um, it's not in some form um, useful, but it's always this pushing for more active learning. But is this kind of the same, um, you know, why is this important? Um, and, you know, how does this kind of influence learning? In the best way possible. I hate the term active learning because it's kind of a misnomer. In order to learn something, you have to actively use it. So all learning is active. And um, the other thing that this gets into is, is another sort of hairy area where um, sometimes learning and engagement get conflated, um, right? So I can do a really cool game in class where everybody's super engaged, but it doesn't necessarily mean they've learned anything from doing that, right? So engagement does not mean learning and um, active doesn't always mean learning. But, hmm, but there is this relationship, right, between we want people to be mentally engaged. And that's the key, mentally engaged. And so when we talk about active learning versus passive learning, usually what people mean are dry, boring lectures versus something that involves doing something or, or is more fun in some way. And um, I would argue that, I mean, Andrew, you kind of said this, like, you can learn from a dry, boring lecture, but the key is that you have to be mentally engaged. Mm -hmm. And so there are times where people are just like anti-lecture, and I don't think that that's right. You can have an engaging lecture. I'd like to believe that I occasionally give engaging lectures, um, right? So, so there's not necessarily like this 
there's a certain thing that's bad. It's about making sure that folks stay mentally engaged and stay interested. And it's true that actually having them do something often forces them to be mentally engaged, right? And so that's why a lot of the active learning techniques that folks talk about tend to work well. It's not necessarily that they're doing stuff. It's that they're having to be mentally engaged with that material in order to do the thing. Does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense. Yeah. And how might you suggest an educator like Sophia in charge of organizing multiple speakers across a longitudinal course for health professions learners support these practices that we just went through? Um, you know, how, how might she pass this knowledge on or like encourage her, her speakers to use these? Any of these things can be incorporated, right? Um, and so on some level, it's, it's kind of choosing where you want to start. I never want to tell people, oh, go and reinvent the wheel. You need to do everything different. Mm-hmm. Instead, most people are doing good things already. And so it's just taking bits and pieces of these things and trying to incorporate them. The easiest thing is probably to engage in some spaced retrieval practice, which Sophia could do on her own. She doesn't need the speakers necessarily involved in this. Um, And the easiest way to do that is to start the day after a speaker by doing some sort of retrieval practice of what that speaker said. Right. So speaker one talks on Wednesday and maybe a Friday is speaker two. Before speaker two starts, you have them just write down everything they can remember from speaker one. And that's it. Right. Very, very simple. It doesn't it's not like a grade or anything like that. It's just an opportunity to try to bring that information to mind. And as often as you can do that, if you can bring up speaker one again later after, I don't know, speaker eight, even better. Right. Um, But I think that's probably the the easiest thing, right? Because it's really simple to do that. uh, And it has a lot of bang for your buck. I love that. I guess I wonder, Cindy, if we can apply it to like a micro level, if Sophia was one of the speakers, and let's say she was speaker one, do you ever encourage folks to do that retrieval practice like within a, let's say, 75 minute lecture where you're like, you know, 60 minutes in, all right, y'all, I want to take, you know, take a second, write on a piece of paper, the first, the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the first half of this, you know, lecture, or like, how do we kind of apply that on maybe a shorter time frame? Yeah, no, fair. Um, the the real answer is there still has to be space for this to work, right? So if you just stopped and you said, "What did I just say?" No learning is going to take place there because they can just regurgitate it. They don't really have to put effort into thinking about it. But if, let's say, halfway through, you stopped and you said, okay, here's what I want you to do. During the first you know, half of what I just said, I mentioned this concept. I want you to write down like three ways you could use that concept in your own clinical practice or something. Um, and so it's not just like rote memorization, right? It's some like application. They actually have to think about it a little bit. So you're asking them to do something a little bit more challenging. And there's a little bit of space there, right? That they've heard something and then there was space. The other thing I'll say about that um, is that we have something that happens that we have all experienced where you're sitting through a talk and the person goes on and on and on. And like halfway through, you're, you're like, I can't take in any more information. It's too much. In cognitive psychology, we call that proactive interference, right? New information, just at some point in time, you just can't. And so um, 
one thing that, that is encouraged is to have breaks, right? And one of the best things you can do during those breaks is a little bit of retrieval practice. Um, so there's been some research showing that a little bit of retrieval practice can release someone from proactive interference, then letting them come back a little bit more refreshed and able to learn some more. Great. Well, those are some very nice concrete take-homes for kind of the educator to try to incorporate these actively into their sessions. You and I just recorded a, an episode on remediation, and we were talking about kind of learners who struggle with medical knowledge and re- retention of medical knowledge. Is there data that kind of teaching these skills to the students themselves helps improve their ongoing retention and learning? There is. Um, in fact, well, not to like put in a shameless plug here, please, but on our plug. website, <laughs> yeah. on, on the Learning Scientists website, um, we have a few blogs and podcasts that are specifically with medical education students and residents who have tried using these things to prepare for whatever, for boards, for whatever. Um, and so, yes, like students doing these things on their own is great. One of the sticky things is that um, folks often are like, no, I've always done it this way and it works for me and I'm going to stick with what I, what I know. And so it's, it's sometimes difficult to convince folks to do this on their own. And that usually ends up being the, the sort of tricky point there. And um, that's actually kind of where the research is right now. So I can't tell you how to do that necessarily, because I don't think we really have a good understanding of how to make that happen. Um, there are things that folks are trying, like, actually show them the research, actually have them sort of experience it in the classroom, and then they'll maybe try doing it on their own outside of the classroom. But um, the, the jury's still out on the best way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to one of your episodes in preparation for this, and uh, I, I don't remember the specific study, but it showed that, you know, this teaching technique helps students have higher grades, and the students enjoyed using it, and, you know, they appreciated that they got higher grades, but then on the next test, they didn't continue to use it. Yeah, um, exactly. It, it like, go what? back to where all... <laughs> We're stuck in our ways. You know, part of it is that these things are are effortful, right? But we've already talked multiple times that it's the effort that leads to learning. Mm. Um, But they're effortful. And most students all, um, you know, you want to take the path of least resistance to getting what you need and, you know, getting that grade or, or whatever. And so I think it's the... No, if you put in a little bit more effort, you'll learn a whole lot more. And it's like, ah, but it's effort. I don't want to. <laughs> I feel that way too sometimes, though. I will say from like the flip side of utilization of these techniques, you know, I also feel like, okay, I got to like, it's so much easier to take a lecture that you have created five years ago and been like, let me just uh, re-up the, you know, at the same time, what I'm hearing today is like, wow. Wouldn't it be nice if I introduced some break for retrieval practice and then was able to interrupt that proactive interference? Like I'm feeling all these things and realizing that that effortful issue is on the learner's side, but it's also on the educator's side who's trying to, you know, incorporate these. Yeah, you can definitely force them to do it. (laughs) They don't like it. (laughs) And force myself to do it. Yeah. So um, to kind of plug your website, um, again, one of your blog posts that I read about in preparation for this episode was on uh, self-advocacy and kind of the belief and confidence of learners and how that role is, is so important to learning. 
and kind of your your mental state going into into learning new material. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of discuss self-efficacy a little bit more, um, its role in the science of learning, um, and kind of where does the the educator um, kind of sit with you know facing self-efficacy in their learners, um, and what's their role in in kind of managing that. Yeah, so self-efficacy, right, is our belief in our ability to do something. So you can have very different self-efficacy for, I don't know, English literature than you do for math, right? Um, That we have different uh, beliefs in our abilities. But that's really what it comes down to, which means it's a very powerful motivator. If I'm walking into a task and I don't think there's any way that I'm going to be able to succeed in it, I'm not going to put in nearly as much effort in that because I don't think that I can anyway. So it's really important that folks feel like, yes, I can do this in order to persist at any given task. So that's why self-efficacy is so important. But um, this goes back to Albert Bandura is the first person who really talked about this and made it very popular in the late 70s. So we've known about this for a while. Um, the, the, there are several different ways that we can improve self-efficacy. And so what I'll do is I'll talk about these and then how educators can use these. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so the first is our previous experiences. If I've been successful before, I'll be successful again. And so the advice to educators there is to try to build in small wins, right? So if I'm stopping during lectures and asking questions that are answerable, that folks know that they can answer, they're going to feel a lot more confident in their ability to answer clinical questions when they're in a clinical situation, let's say, right? So you can create those previous experiences by creating small wins. The next is experiences of others. So if we see that other folks have been successful, then um, we feel like, oh yeah, I can do that too. And so there the idea is for medical educators or or anyone um, to really highlight the fact that other folks have been successful, right? People just like you have done this, so I know you can do it too. The third is messages from others, which is probably the most important one for educators. Um, And this is just literally telling people, I know that you can do this. Um, And so there's, there's lots of different ways that you can say that same thing, but basically pointing out to individuals like you, you've done good things. I know that you can do this. I'm giving you that message that I believe in you, even when you don't believe in you. And then the last one is physiological or psychological state. Basically, we're less likely to believe in ourselves when we're really tired or hungry or angsty or whatever, right? Um, and that one is, is a little less um, likely to control, but there are some things that you could do. So, um, for example, if folks seem like they're getting tired have them stand up and stretch as as one of those breaks, right? And then they come in there just a little bit more energized, right? When you start talking again. And so they, you're building up a little bit of self-efficacy for them potentially by doing that. So really anything that you can do to kind of think about that, like psychological or physiological state that folks are in um, can be good. And maybe this comes back to that engaging part too, right? If you can make them a little happier, then maybe that works a little bit there too. Um, yeah, so, so those, and, and importantly, there's been research showing that you can do this. You can manipulate student self-efficacy and manipulate their course grades by incorporating these four things. So there was one study where um, a professor just sent emails targeting these four things after exams, and then on the next exam looked at their performance, and it 
went up if well compared to the other group that didn't get the emails their performance was higher so worth doing for sure those are really nice concrete tips of of how to improve that self-efficacy and I was just kind of reflecting that it seems like being a medical intern puts you at risk for all of the <laughs> the things that are not supportive of learning. So maybe as a profession, we can help them not be as tired and hungry and uh, <laughs> overwhelmed. <laughs> to, your, to your point, yeah, I was thinking that as I'm saying this, like, this is medical students that I'm talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say to your point, Molly, I feel like as a chief, my job was like constant self-efficacy promotion. Like it was my role, a big part of it was, you know, the teaching side, but was also this kind of, you have done this before. Like, I don't know how many of my supervisors were like, remind people that they've hit home runs before and that they will continue to do so. Like they're going to admit seven people because they have done that successfully before and kind of hitting on those pieces. And then the like physiologic state, like maybe somebody's hungry, like provide some food for them. Like, I feel like that was my role as the chief is like, like figuring out where this lesion is in self-efficacy and trying to like plug it in with those strategies that you just mentioned, Cindy. Is there like a particular time when this is most effective? Like, is it kind of before entering something difficult or uh, like a, like a difficult patient or a problem or um, a test, or is it kind of like active, like while things are going on? um, Or is it like a very good, like reflective or maybe all the above? Yeah, I mean, I think probably all of the above, but where it's going to have the most impact is when you are needing high motivation, right? So if, if what I need to be motivated to do is study, then it would be right before studying, right? If what I need to be motivated, like if my motivation is low, I am going to be really crappy at whatever it is that I need to do. That's where this is going to be the most important. And I mean, With all of these things and this, um, I've been talking about little tips and tricks, but none of these things are prescriptions, right? It's it's all up to to the folks listening to decide where does this make sense for for me? Where does this make where where do my students need to be more motivated? Um, And so, you know, I could say like it's here, but I think the real answer is just it's wherever they need to be motivated. I love that, Cindy. It's like you're asking, you know, let's apply all of these skills on an individual level and just knowing that all these approaches have to be individualized. And I think to that end, I mean, we touched on this a little bit, but if we want to continue to help kind of Sophia optimize students, um, especially that transfer of knowledge that we talked about earlier or kind of, you know, specifically um, being successful with patients at the bedside or if there's a, you know, a difficult encounter with the patient, Um, do you have kind of tips for educators to employ some of these techniques that we haven't discussed yet or to help students move, you know, from student role to like apprentice role and, and taking that knowledge they've gained with them? Yeah. So from an educator perspective, um, one of the most important things for transfer, one of the biggest things that you can do, um, is just to recognize the fact that we're really bad at it. So, um, Notori- like humans are terrible at recognizing, ah, this is a situation where I could use something that I learned. We're just bad at it. And so um, one of the best things we can do is try to what we call in my world, um, build up retrieval cues. So the more things that can match between the learning situation and the transfer situation, the better. And so that can mean trying to talk very realistically about what that's going to look like when you get there, 
right? So that when they do see that, they're like, oh yeah, I remember they told me about this. Or doing role play activities. And I know a lot of this is already built into medical education, which is fantastic. But more of those things will increase transfer. And as we talked about before, if you do multiple varied types of those things, right, they become multiple varied concrete examples that then that's going to then transfer to new situations even better. But that's the real, um, the only thing I feel like we haven't talked about is that idea that you want this match as close as possible between the learning situation and that transfer situation. If they were one-to-one, that would be the best situation, right? That would be the most likely to transfer. And so the further you get away from that, the less likely someone is to transfer that information. I'm going to apologize really quick because I have a quick rant. But as somebody who has used role play a lot or role rehearsal is another way that that people have told me to kind of name it so that people don't hate it. Um, Cindy, (laughs) I feel like everyone hates it. And so I'm just wondering, entirely selfishly, there's a way that you have found role play or talking about role play or introducing it or, and maybe it's naming that we want things to match, you know, what we're learning to what's going to happen, the transfer situation. But like, how have you gotten the buy-in for a role play or a role rehearsal? Cause man, there's many of us out here who are struggling with that. Right. It's like I said, everybody hates quizzes, right? Yeah. I mean, so how do you get them? So, um, I don't have a great answer for this. One answer is we need to increase motivation. So use all that self-efficacy stuff, right? So stay, say, hey, people who have done this before have been more successful, right? Like this works because, and so if you do this, um, you'll be like these other people who were more successful doing it. Um, maybe showing them that research, right? Just like you were saying is like, we're trying to create this match. That's why we're doing this. Oftentimes giving people the why is one of the best things that you can do, right? So when I give people quizzes, I'm like, I'm not trying to get you. Like, that's not my purpose here. I'm not trying to put you on the spot or scare you or anything. I'm trying to do this to help you. And so I think, you know, being as as honest and transparent about that um, could be helpful, I can't promise. There will still be people who hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cindy, this has been amazing. Um, do you have any main take-home points for our listeners? Anything that you want to really head home with? You know, I would say, um, you know, as we've talked about in here, you should never let this be like one and done. So great that you are listening to this, that you've heard this message. Fantastic make sure you come back to these ideas again. Um, Because if this is the only time you hear it, it's not going to have a huge impact on you or your medical education for that matter. And so coming back to these things again and again, I think is most important. And there are lots and lots of resources out there. So I've mentioned my website. I'll just say it one more time because it's probably the go-to place. (laughs) Um, It's www.learningscientists.org. And so um, there's a blog archive there that you can go and if you're interested in retrieval practice, you can click the retrieval practice button and find like tons of ideas of how to incorporate retrieval practice. Um, it's searchable. So you could search like medical and just have everything come up that's related to anything medical. Um, and then there's a podcast too that uh, if that's more your jam, then um, we have lots of episodes where our real goal is just to try to translate the really dense science of learning articles into something that's digestible for anyone. So fantastic. Well, it's a great resource and I was, I was very happy to find it and 
you will have inspired me to practice my space learning and check it out again later. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I feel like Cindy, you just told us you're like, make sure you do some retrieval practice yourself. And like oh, that's and exactly that. right. Yeah, yeah, and do that. I love do some it. Space to review. <laughs> yes. That was great. Oh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, that was such a great conversation with Dr. Neville. Um, I, I feel like so many pearls that she shared with us, and I love diving deeper into the science of learning. Um, I think for me, I um, was really reflecting a lot as she was talking about how we kind of consider illness scripts and how we teach illness scripts and kind of you thinking about using some of those techniques of elaboration and interleaving um, and concrete examples to help learners really build their illness scripts and um, understand those those uh, situations more in more detail. Yura, um, how about you? Molly, I too was blown away from everything Cindy said. I just love that she told us, you know, space practice has the most research right after that retrieval practice. And then if we can just, you know, be meta, like we're always so meta, spaced retrieval practice, I feel like is the ultimate. And the other piece that I think that uh, really stuck with me is that kind of making sure for transfer that we are matching kind of the learning situation with the transfer situation and kind of uh, foreshadowing for learners. Like this is important because we are going to apply it and you're going to see it later on. And I think that one is really going to kind of stick with me in terms of how I introduce role plays, if I do, uh, in the future to make uh, kind of bring it, uh, interest and engagement, excitement for that. What about you, Andrew? What did you take away? Yeah. Wow. What a great conversation overall. Um, she is certainly the expert and this was all just really, really informative. Um, along with all of the, the tools, these six tools to use, I just really enjoyed how she incorporated um, the self-efficacy part into it and, and how important that was along with these tools that she talked about. And then also her reminding everyone to like come back to this, um, to keep using this and to, to not forget about some of these things and to always kind of draw back on this information and some of these tools to remind yourself on ways that you know you can do as much as you can for your learners and in these learning situations. Well, this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to the team at Podpace for editing our audio and our social media team, Andrew, who's here with us today on Instagram and John Ong on Twitter. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And I've been Andrew Delat. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. Please visit our website at thecurbsiders.com to support our Patreon, view our show notes, transcripts, and infographics. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. And I'm Dr. Ira Krasnovskaya. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical education. Yummy.